0: And we are go! Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is the Virginia P- Company Podcast and I am your host, John Smith. And I am just here after a two or three week vacation, though not really a vacation because I was excessively busy the entire time doing all sorts of things, namely preparing for a wedding, going to a bachelor party, getting lit with endless partying and merriment, only for it to calm down into a simple season of winter. Ha <sighs> You hear that? That is the sound of contentment and general revelry coming to a close. However, it is just beginning, because soon enough it will be time for my date of birth. And as we all know, that is important. Well, to some of us it is. So, what do I want to talk about today with you lovely folks? Well, I think as always we have to start out with, uh, you know, the cigar of the week. You know, um, it's been two weeks. So... I confess, tonight is not going to have a review of a cigar, however, I did go and pick out, and you can probably hear me rustling around here with my bag, uh, several cigars for the next couple weeks. I think the next one I'm going to do is the Punch Classico. It's supposed to be a pretty good cigar, um, and, and my hope, you know, it's, it's one of those budget sticks, it was only like $5, my hope is that it lives up to its um, reputation as a great cigar apparently has a lot of really great flavors associated with it and i can't wait but you'll have to find the rest of that out next week i also have a rocky patel drew estate java latte which i mean it's gonna be gonna be great it's uh you know supposed to taste like coffee which of course you've already had the nub so you know my preference is for sweet coffee uh coffee-esque flavors then of course i got an St. Louis Ray, SLR, Reserva Especial, and it's uh the heco Emano, which is supposed to be a little bit darker than I'm used to, but I'm hoping it's good, SLR Rothschilde. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but you're going to have to deal with it. It's going to be a little bit darker than you're used to. It's not going to be light and fluffy. It's not a beginner cigar, apparently, though I guess any cigar could be a beginner cigar. I started off on dark stuff, and I've worked my way back to light. Uh, most people start the other way around. Then finally, I have another punch uh, called the Rare Corojo, which is a little bit darker. It's box-pressed. It's delicious. It has a little square to it. And I can't wait, because you can hear, that is the sound of my cutter being prepared and ready. My matches stacked. My torch, here, if you listen, you can hear it. You hear that? That delicious hum of ozone and death as my small lightsaber, my small, innocent lightsaber, prepares to light a beautiful, beautiful cigar. Though I can't smoke inside, which is where I tend to, you know, smoke uh, outside, though it's the colding down where I'm at in Virginia. Uh, temperatures are dropping rapidly, and thus, so is uh, my ability to smoke regularly. Though, I confess, I'll just go to a, one of my local um, Establishments and smoke. I have like two cigar lounges I frequent regularly. One's called Old Town Tobacconist and they're literally located in Old Town Fredericksburg. Um, And I go there because they have great staff and service. Um, I will say their humidor, while it has great selection, I'm not always impressed with it. Um, It's more for the people. The experience makes it all worth it because... They have a really great community, great people, um, and time and energy is spent to make every customer feel welcome and valued. They really do try to get you what you want. They have great suggestions, a lot of experience. They sell pipes, pipe tobacco, accessories, everything I need to maintain my humidor, they have. They're always generous, um, lighting my cigar for me, helping me. They chose my first cigar, they got me into it, and so I have a lot of brand loyalty. Um just I generally speaking tend to go to total wine for the cigars. Um that I buy for the review just because I like their humidor setup a little bit better. Uh, even though it's mostly, like, they have a lot of, like, different flavors, but it's mostly aromatic, it's mostly sweet, you know, they don't mix different blends uh, as much. They keep dark stuff with dark, mild with mild, and light with light, and that helps to me, in my opinion, that helps with the flavors, though I might be completely wrong, that's that's just my opinion. As far as the second shop, besides Total Wine and Old Town Tobacconist, there's a place just called the Cigar Lounge. I call it Hogshead, uh, because that's what it was introduced to me as. And it's down in Spotsylvania. Um, right around South Point. If you've ever been around there, you should go. And uh, you know, 21 and up, of course. I'm not trying to encourage young people to go and smoke, but it, it they have a really great community there with great salesmen and um excellent hard service. And I think it's veteran-owned and operated, which is great. Because I, being a shameless nationalist, support veteran-owned businesses. Ha ha, now give me money. Uh <laughs> And we'll give them money in any case. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much the next uh, lineup for the next couple of cigars. So at least four weeks of podcasts are guaranteed to happen because I want an excuse to smoke each one of these. And I've made it my own personal mission not to smoke unless I'm releasing a podcast. So now you know my, my hobby rests upon you and your listening ears and success of this. So you have no choice but to listen, hear my lame advertisements, and uh, continue on in tacit support of my bad reviews and various opinion pieces. I hope, uh, I hope and pray that uh, you join me for the next four. Um, And I think on that note, uh, section one is over. We'll get to section two soon enough. Give me one moment. All right, well, after that brief interlude, here we are, back again where we started. Oh, geez. So I mentioned earlier that I was going to a wedding, and it was a rather beautiful service, but made me think, you know, about some traditions in the uh, wedding, and here's some of the things I dug up. So, I don't know if you knew this, but carrying the bride over the threshold is actually a reference to rape. Yeah, who would have thought? Now, before you get upset, hear me out. This is how it works. So, picture this. It is an ancient time. You are a Roman, and you and all of your Roman brothers are off looking for wives. Well, Just so happens you're at war with another tribe, and that tribe has left all of its women out to bathe, naked, unguarded, unprotected. So what do you and your men do? You round them up, take them home, and make them brides. And, well, next thing you know, they're resisting, as they do. And when they grab them, you have to force them up. And the reason you're carrying them is not because you respect them or love them, but because they won't move on their own. So you pick them up as you, if they were just cargo, which essentially they are at this point, And you uh, carry them into your home. Then when the men come looking for them, well, the chastity is ruined. So that essentially uh, they don't want to take them back because <laughs> they're no longer virgins. And thus, the rape of the Sabine women and those children, those bastard children, would eventually create the generation that would eternally conquer the rest of the uh, peninsula. And that's a Roman tradition right there. That actually happened. Or so Plutarch says. In any case, that's just one tradition. Here's another. So, I was a groomsman, and the groomsman's job is uh, pretty simple, right? You stand up there, you look handsome, you walk down the aisle with a woman of your choice, or of their choice, usually, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, you look happy for them, right? Wrong. So wrong. No, a groomsman's job is not just to provide emotional support, but to actually provide protection. Because if anyone tries to capture or kidnap the bride or take the wedding off, your job is to be the biggest, strongest man there to protect them. The best man is the one in, he- in charge of security, traditionally. So the groomsmen are chosen specifically to protect the bride and keep anyone from interrupting the wedding or kid- kidnapping them. This comes from a time in which uh, weddings were not always sacrosanct and so had to be protected by security and trusted men who the groom knew would not touch his bride and B would protect her with his own life. Interesting, huh? How about this one? How about this one? Uh, of course, we all know walking the bride down the aisle and giving in marriage is a reference to uh, kingship and passing on you know, your daughter, to be bred into another house, right? As though it was property. But actually, you know, in reality, there was a lot more that went into it than simply, hey, here's my daughter, take care of her, that's mine now, you know, that's, or that's yours now, here's what's mine, now is yours. It's not simply an exchange of goods. The dowry, in exchange, was often designed so that if the husband died or was a flop, the family would know that at least whatever resources were there would be given to the bride and were her legal partender, so if the marriage didn't work out, she could take it with her. Thus, the dowry was a form of insurance to take care of the bride and the family. Well, in any case, I thought you might enjoy some of those. Here's another thing that I thought was interesting about the wedding. So we all uh, have different things that are chosen, right, for us, and generally speaking, um, most of my friends have chosen marriage. Well, I'm single, so <laughs> to give you some personal, personal things about me, I'm, I'm very single, and. Uh, I was just thinking about that, you know, the other day, um, the benefits and drawbacks of being married versus single. See, when you're single, and a million people have done this, when you're single, I think uh, it's horrible because you really don't have a frame of reference, right? You picture a relationship, and you've always been single, by the way, you picture relationships in such a way that they are idealized. In the same sense, when you get a job, you always picture, like, your first job is going to be so great, and you're going to make all this money, and then you get there, and you yell that for eight hours a day, and your boss is mean, and customers are horrible. Yeah, you know, just like that. Everyone has an idealized or stylized version of what the concept or the form of something is. For me, the form of, oh, there's a train. Do you hear it? Toot, toot. chug a What was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. For me, the idealized form of relationship is one where you have absolute trust, loyalty, and security. But there's probably a lot more stress that comes along with it. For instance, I noticed that the bride and the groom, whom I love both individually, they're amazing people, the bride and the groom had to stand outside of their own party to say goodbye to everyone who was leaving. Now, this was happening throughout the party. How interesting. How interesting that your own party, you really have to supervise and make sure everyone else is having a good time. No one cares if you're having a good time, though they should. It was a beautiful ceremony altogether, but I just thought that was interesting. Here they are, two people becoming one, eternally and always, inseparable, right? And yet their first act is an act of courtesy to other people and celebrating other people who came to celebrate them. It's rather ironic, though I'm sure they don't mind, and neither of them are that selfish as I am, but that's what I was thinking. Another thing I noticed is uh, to bring cigars back into things, there's this tradition of smoking. Um, and I believe it's to relieve stress, genuinely. The groom and I shared a, uh, a sweet acid cigar provided by his father, a uh, stepfather anyway, and, uh, that was amazing. That was a good bit of fun. Um, I've never had an acid cigar before. I've had friends who say they're horrible, but I enjoyed it immensely. It's a small cigarillo. But anyway, cigars typically relieve stress and are associated with celebration. Well, my boy Nick, <laughs> that's what I'm going to call him, uh, he seemed to enjoy it immensely. He seemed to enjoy his cigar and, and be a little bit stressed afterwards. So it was cold as all get out. And as for the sweet girl, well, the bride, she looked lovely, as always. You see, I couldn't believe uh, how well she was taking the stress because, you know, the bride, everyone talks about, like, how much stress there's put and preparing the wedding and everything. And it, and it looked like the two of them were taking it all in stride. Like, I've never seen the groom so stressed. He's a really easygoing guy. The bride seemed to take it all in strut uh, and didn't start to uh, tire out till the end. But both of them were, were amazing. and um, Their de seemed to be, her de seemed to be talking with her girls. And the groom's de seemed to be uh, not talking to anybody. <laughs> or hanging out with the boys. And the uh, rehearsal dinner was great. They had amazing catering, though, to be honest, um, I I had eaten a little bit beforehand, so I was not able to give it my full. I I ate mere two plates instead of my usual three helpings, which, I mean, as a glutton, you have to understand, I'm a a huge glutton, um, It was frustrating, though I confess I was excited when they invited me back for Super Bowl Sunday so I could eat the rest of the food, because they knew a good thing when they saw it, and they knew I'd be willing and ready to eat uh, they, they weren't fooled. They knew that this fluffy exterior yielded results. And by the way, speaking of yielding results while eating, me and my other friend Nick, also named Nick, no relation, or somewhat relation, uh, went to this place called Kumo Sushi. And it's rather delicious, uh, to be honest with you. So, I, if you don't know anything about me, you know I love sushi. Now, why would I like little balls of rice wrapped around lettuce, stuffed with raw fish? doesn't sound very appealing when you put it that way, but hear hear me out. So one thing is that it's curious and different. Uh, I confess I am that white girl. Yes, it's so foreign. That is just amazing. That's me uh, when it comes to sushi and food. I will try anything once. Uh, And I tried sushi once and I enjoyed it so immensely. And here's what I think I liked most about it. A, it was unique in that the presentation was unlike other food. It's bite-sized, right? And I love bite-sized things. Uh, that is a shtick I have. I enjoy it immensely. I like shticks, okay? I like themes. I like gimmicks, okay? I'm a gimmicky person. And uh, the gimmick of having a bunch of little bite-sized portions that you eat, uh, to me, was... Mind-blowing, though I suppose it's no different than any other food because you always eat your food in bite-sized portions. But, you know, for me, that was cool that they already did the work for you and uh, broke it up for you. That was amazing. So maybe that just hints at my infantile nature? I don't know. Maybe it's a sign of my own immaturity and lack of self-awareness. Who knows? But the second thing I liked about it was, uh, besides the presentation, the way it was divided, was also the uh, texture. When you're eating it, the rice is actually soft, yielding, and doesn't come off as grainy. And the sushi provides most of the flavor. I actually don't eat it with soy sauce. Um, and I enjoy crab and eel and unagi. and Well, I guess that's also eel. Um, I've tried octopus. It's not that great, but I, almost every other roll I've enjoyed. California rolls, your basic white, you know, your basic run-the-line rolls. I've enjoyed those immensely. Um, that's what I used to just eat all the time. But now I've kind of graduated to eel, crab, um, fried, unfried, shrimp, you know, everything, tuna, um, every kind of roll. I even had smoked salmon, which I didn't think was a thing for rolls. And, of course, it's Americanized trash, but it's delicious Americanized eastern trash, okay? And I wouldn't have it any other way. That's another thing that I've enjoyed Um, besides, you know, getting into sushi was the fact that I can eat a lot of it and not feel sick, um, so me and my friend Nick were out at this place called Kumo Sushi, and they do this special where each weeknight you can get $20, and you can get all you can eat, now for a mortal man, that's not a big deal, because, you know, maybe you'll eat three or four rolls, you know, not a big deal, they'll make, most of the time won't lose their money, because most people only like two rolls, uh, not me, I will eat seven, seven rolls, uh, minimum, And they will lose at least $30 on me. And they know it, which is why they give me dirty looks when I walk through the door. But that's why I'm going to repay them ever so slightly by (laughs) giving them a shameless shout-on on this podcast. Try it out. It's it's delicious. Kumo Sushi. Look it up. It's actually right across from uh, UMW next to a Planet Fitness. If you get the chance, check it out. Um, and, And just eating all those rolls and making them suffer economically... Uh, I hope the deal. <laughs> I hope I hope my little advertisement here does something to repay them. Uh, in any case, I, I think I'm gonna go there for my own birthday at some point. Um, as far as continuing on with the eating trend, I would say that uh, uh, my eating habits generally have gotten uh, better since last year. Like, I started going to the gym, um, and I'm going about three times a week now. And I just do. I know everyone's gonna make fun of me, but like, it's just chest, back, arms. That's all I do. I do a little bit of cardio and I walk sometimes. It's like very minimalist. Um, and the reason for that is because every t- I don't get cramps uh, when I do the others, but I get horrible, horrible cramps when I do leg day. And part of that is because I'm a 300-pound man. And so doing squat, a lot of squats, doing a lot of you know calf raises, doing a lot of uh, those types of exercises um, at leg press – will just it's not really my thighs that get hurt it's my calves that just are too stressed and just start getting destroyed um and so I tend to uh ease off them and just walk cuz I feel like my legs get enough exercise hauling my big butt around all the time but um yeah with with the and coming along and the weight and the eating it, it's just hard because I feel like after I eat I deserve an even larger portion and so I tend to go to things that like uh aren't good for me But I've started getting better with eating salads every day for lunch, which helps me control and curb my appetite. Because having a salad with, you know, two or three pieces of fruit, like a banana or an apple on the side, and then drinking copious amounts of water. Which everyone should be doing, by the way. If you're listening to this and you aren't drinking water, drink some. It's good for you. It keeps you alive. Your body's 70% water. Why aren't you drinking water? Drink some water. Just do it. Just do it, darn you. Oh, and speaking of just do it and Shiloh Buff, how about this Disney Plus Like, I didn't, I thought the whole point of, you know, streaming platforms was, hey, cable TV is lame and you have to pay for all these different channels. You know, how about you just stream everything online? And now everyone has their own streaming platform and it kind of ruined the point of switching from cable to, you know, streaming like Hulu and Fios and all that. You know, of course, I don't really watch TV that much, but generally speaking, my preference is always going to be Excuse me. It's always going to be uh, anime, and, and my preference would you know, be that we not have the same six monopolies over and over again. I thought the market was moving past this, but instead we've come for full circle and individual plans and having to find the same thing 15 times from five different sites, and it's horrible, and eh, we need to stop that. So if you're listening, Disney+, Plus or any of these other lame streaming platforms, um, stop it. Stop trying to make money and kowtow to my beliefs as a consumer. Because I know that's what you'll do. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, I can dream, can't I? any case, um, Thanksgiving is coming. And, you know, uh, back to the topic of eating and and merriment and general things. I was thinking about, like, you know, the holiday itself (coughs) is kind of slept on, to be honest, in America. Like, (coughs) you'll excuse me. (coughs) It's like Halloween, then (laughs) Christmas. Uh, you'll have to excuse my cough, I don't have a water up here. Yeah, I don't follow my own advice. Sue me. Um, I have a flask, though. i probably use that. Yeah, flask. <laughs> Delicious. I'm not even sure what was in it, but I guess we'll find out as the course of this podcast goes down. Alright. So, uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Thanksgiving. It's a great holiday, but it gets slept on. Like, it goes immediately from October to December. Uh, November gets slept on so hard. No one cares about it. And it's kind of a tragedy because Thanksgiving was, in a sense, you know, a time to be grateful before you get a bunch of stuff for Christmas. And it's time to be grateful for what the year's given you so far. I mean, the year's about to end. You know, it's it's like, hey, this is a summary of what's happened so far. Why don't you be grateful for it? But... You know, what's worse than that is the Black Friday. Oh my gosh. Now, I'm, you know, I get, some people do it as a tradition, some people enjoy getting deals, what have you. That's fine. But, like, it's kind of ironic that the day after being thankful, we go and trample and kill each other for cheap goods that aren't even made here in America. You know, like, it, it's it's kind of pathetic and sad. But I think that's part of our culture as consumers. Um, we aren't really raised to have principles anymore. The only principle is to consume, so... You know, and I'm not, like, I'm not one of those environmentalists or, like, radical leftists who's, like, get rid of all property and materialism and man or anything. But I feel like culture and tradition and principles and integrity should hold far more weight than the desire of a market. And, you know, I I, I get that for some of my followers. That's going to be hard to swallow. But seriously, I, you know, Black Friday, you do what you want. But to me, what's more valuable is spending time with your family, not... Wasting your time getting trampled in line over goods that you can buy any day of the year. You can't always spend time with your family, right? You, you, you can go shopping any day of the week if you really want to, right? You can find deals throughout the year. Um, I was just at Joseph A. Banks the other day. I got a $130 scarf for like 20 bucks. It was sick. It's a cashmere scarf. Boom, flex on you. But in any case, you know you, you can find deals and stuff all online all the time, especially with like Amazon. There's a million ways you could do shopping. You could do Black Friday shopping all year long if you really wanted to. Plus, with the market of Chinese knockoffs coming out, yeah, without a doubt, you'll be fine on Black Friday. But getting to see your great-great-grandma for one more, you know, for one more Thanksgiving, getting to spend time with your little cousins as they grow up, maybe doing their first Thanksgiving, spending time with your family, eating and, and drinking and making merry, and, you know, if you pray, praying, and being thankful for everything you have—that's kind of priceless. You can't really put a nineteen ninety nine two for nineteen ninety nine sticker on Thanksgiving on family and holidays, and it's a cheesy, you know, traditional message. But it's something that would seem to reason and might go a longer way in this civilization we have if people started valuing their families, their principles, and their traditions more than their wallets. You know, I just generally feel like that's a principle we should all be able to get behind. Now, here's another thing um, that's been bothering me about Thanksgiving. (sighs) Comfort food. Now, I know this might be on, you know, speaking of traditions, I'm about to break one. I don't like turkey. The best part of the turkey is the neck. Fight me, okay? The greasiest, sweetest, meatiest part of the turkey is the neck. I enjoy it. I like it. But the rest of the turkey, uh, that poultry needs to get out of here. It's trash. Ham is the better... Food. It's the better holiday food. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Cold ham, odd mashed potatoes, covered in gravy, with macaroni and cheese at a base, and a stuffing top is better than turkey any day of the week. Turkey is trash and garbage, and anyone who likes turkey more than ham is probably dumb. Like, that, you know, my unbiased opinion, totally, unironically correct. Turkey is trash, and I don't know why Benjamin Franklin ever thought that it should be our national bird. It's big, it's ugly, the men have chest hair, which is unnatural for a bird, by the way. They have an ugly face. It's not noble or majestic. The best thing about it is the feathers or the behind. But you know what? Maybe the turkey would have been better for America as a mascot. Because you see, the best thing about it is its butt. And that seems to be all that America's focused on right now. Is showing the its butt to the world. You know? That's not a political jab to anyone, by the way. That's just a general uh consensus of our culture. Like, we have a lot of fancy feathers, but on the face of it, we're kinda ugly, wrinkled, disgusting. And beneath all the feathers and plume, it's just another flightless fluffy bird. What you gonna do? You know? In any case, um and, and while we're on the topic of flightless fluffy birds, like people low-key need to stop freaking out about like I saw this thing called the dodo, which you know, I guess is like an environmentalist thing, um, and it's about animals and stuff like that. It's like People are still lamenting that? The dodo? It's been extinct for hundreds of years. You've never even seen a dodo. You've seen pictures of a dodo. Why are you worried about an extinct animal you could do nothing to prevent? And even if you had been there, you wouldn't have done nothing because you would have been too busy trying to survive. You would have been too, too busy trying to survive to do any of that. Like, environmentalism is so dumb when it comes to mass extinction and stuff like that. It's like... What is history but a vast series of mass extinctions with people and species being destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed over and over again in an endless cycle of man eating man, dog eat dog, all this trash destroying itself. It's like George Carlin once said. He said, you know, the planet, the planet will be fine. The people, they're screwed. And it's it's fundamentally true. It's fundamentally true. Like, I don't get why we put all this consensus and value in the environment when low-key, the Earth is going to survive long after us. Yeah, I get, you know, preserving it for you and preserving it for your children. That's acceptable. But when you're saying we gotta preserve the Earth for the Earth's sake, it's like, no, the Earth doesn't need us. We need the Earth. So stop trying to preach to me and talk about how you're doing this for Mother Earth. You ain't doing this for Mother Earth. You're doing it for yourself, you arrogant, arrogant prick. You don't really care about the environment. You just care about looking good, nine times out of ten. Because I don't see you quitting your car going on public transportation. I don't see you doing anything. Yeah, you'll make a sign, but then you'll leave it on the ground for someone else to pick up later. You trash you're garbage. You, you overrated and hipster. you yeah preaching soapbox worse than an evangelical Christian hypocrite. I don't have a care in the world against it. You know, anyone who condemns the United States for being too wasteful and for having a horrible environment and doesn't condemn China or India or any East Asian country ever uh, is probably a liar who's just trying to virtue signal so that they can get some attention from women who also tend to vote liberal. Okay, that's that's my honest opinion to be like completely clear environmentalism is stupid and while some of it has merit but it only has merit insofar as benefiting its people the people okay as merit as far as benefiting people who care about it but as far as like species going extinct the world dying it's like well you know the world survived a mass ice age the world has survived meteors that destroyed 99 percent of all life the world survived things that, nothing, that life on Earth could do absolutely nothing to prevent or stop. And yet life thrives anyway. So what if, you know, we are wiped out entirely? I happen to believe we will be one day. Like, we, we will not be here forever. And whatever comes to replace us on this Earth, if it comes to replace us, not saying it will, but if it does... It'll hopefully be a better store than we are, but you getting in the street, making a fake sign, and yelling at me for driving a car when you drive one as well is hypocrisy. You expecting me to pay higher taxes when you don't pay any at all is hypocrisy. It's lies. It, it just comes off as, as preachy and intolerant. It's like that lame evangelical Christian who's like, Yeah, guys, you got to stop having premarital sex. It's like, Oh, when did you get married? When well, I was like 20. What? Like, it's not fair. It's, it's like that evangelical Christian who... who Sits on a soapbox and says, okay, everyone has to do X, Y, and Z. And then they're in the middle of an affair themselves. You guys need to stop watching porn. Watching porn. You know, you need to stop lying. But lies every other word. That's, to me, what I see the left as. What we, what, what a lot of, the, you know, these environmentalists and, like, extreme leftists are. Is they're basically the evangelical right on steroids, but for secular causes. They don't use religion or Jesus. Their mascot is themselves and their own virtue. For abstract causes. It doesn't even have a doctrine like Christianity or Islam or any other faith. Because it's anti-faith. It's a faith in themselves. It's a faith in their agenda. And it's weak, cowardly, and has no real substance other than trying to look like a decent enough person. Which is kind of deconstructionist because, you know, Christianity and most religions acknowledge humans are crap. Need to be improved. But a lot of these people, like, they're convinced that, you know... They're already really good people, and so everyone should just be like them. That's the difference. Like, Christians are like, hey, we should be like Jesus. Environmentalists are like, hey, you should be like me. I think that breaks it down pretty thoroughly. And I know, like, it's kind of gone a lot of places in the last, like, 23 minutes and 48 seconds, but I just hope people start to think about these things a little more objectively. I need a break, and I need to get a drink of water because I'm getting frustrated. So I'll be right back. Brief interlude. I'm gonna go get a drink of water, chill out a little bit, and here I am, chilled out, ready to speak into your waiting and grateful ears. Ah, <sighs> what a sigh, what a sigh. You know, soon I'll be an age, an older age, and my birthday approaches. And to confess with you and be honest, um. I'm not really looking forward to it. Like, in a sense, like, what is there to celebrate, you know? Like, of course, I made it another year. Many people have died before ever making it to my age. And, uh, you know, but many other people have lived much longer than my age. And I suppose there are questions on both sides of the benefits and merits both. Some people insist they want to die young and never grow old. Others say they hope to grow old and die in their sleep. And some even hold out hope that they won't die at all, but rather, you know, some prophecy will be fulfilled or some medicine be invented or some cure for death will be, without a doubt, implemented across the entire world, sparing us all from that greatest of all mysteries. The afterlife. I suppose when I think about my birthday, it's less about those deep constants and principles and more about, well, what's the point? It's just another day. Millions of people were born on that day as well. What well, makes me special? And my parents and family and loved ones would, of course, say, well, Billy, you are special. You're special to us. That's true. And even if, you know, if I was special... uh, To millions of other peoples, would I really be special? Would I be any more special than an actor in Hollywood? Or a beloved political leader? What makes them special? What, because more people know they exist? Suppose there was a perfect man, and no one knew he existed. Would he still be special? Would he still be perfect? What is perfection, and who defines it? And by the way, how would you even prove he was perfect? And by what standard? Suppose there is a great man, or even a good man. Well, what makes him great or good? You can't even suppose it. We don't know him. If he did exist, we don't know his name. I suspect that the majority of good men, or even great men, are completely unknown and anonymous. Because humans tend to give the most fame to those who are most infamous. And we call them great because they're infamous. Tyrants and heroes and kings like Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon, Cyrus, Alexander. Of course, we have to remember, you know, there were multiple Alexanders. There's Peter of Russia. We have to go ahead and get into Catherine the Great. And of course, we can remember Gustavus Adolphus. And then hundreds of other monarchs Alfred the Wise of England, George Washington of America. There are hundreds of leaders, Julius Caesar, the great consuls of Rome, living and dying, whether famous or anonymous. I'm sure there were many great and terrible people. We always hope that the terrible people will die anonymous, but is anonymity what's the difference between anonymity and fame and death? You know? Like, what difference does it make whether everyone knew you once lived or whether no one did? When, in a thousand years, regardless of anyone who knows you lived, they'll probably be dead too. Sir, there are some legacies that live on, but people, in this world anyway, don't tend to. That's kind of a cornerstone of some religions, is it gives you a way to escape that ultimate fate, that... Your birth and your life and your death and your greatness is, while relevant, relevant to one who is entirely relevant at all times. You see, if time has an ending, and perception of time has an ending, then it seems to reason that something greater than time must exist. There's something that has to transcend time, transcend mortality, transcend beginnings and endings. And that, of course, would have to be a deity, a god. Something that pre-exists time, or at least has a means of escaping its effects. I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that most gods tend to be immortal. Otherwise, what would make them gods? They'd just be very powerful men, or monsters, or beasts. But what differentiates the gods from the men is that they tend to be able to escape that most feared thing's death. Though, of course, the Egyptian gods couldn't, and the Norse gods certainly didn't, and even the Greek gods while not dead, would be split asunder and tortured for eternity. But there were certain gods and principles that, for the most part, could stay eternally young and were strong and couldn't be kept brought low, unless they were something of equal or greater power. It's strange. I think humans are the same way today. We kind of echo those old gods. the The, the idol of the eternally strong, young, robust man, the eternally beautiful, fertile woman, that's still there. That's still a part of the human psyche, but instead of going to Aphrodite or Zeus or Apollo or or Odin or Thor or Ra or Set, we we go to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> we go to Marilyn Monroe. She's a perfect example. Eternally beautiful, young, gorgeous, remembered for her looks, her vanity. classic style beautiful in every generation universally acknowledged but would she have still been the beautiful icon she was if no one had known her is beauty unrecognized still beauty I don't know part of me wants to believe that there's this objective truth objectively speaking when I say objective what do I mean that regardless of whether someone acknowledges it or not there are these things called facts And facts don't change regardless of a person's opinion or perception. Though I'm inclined to believe that is the case, I don't have any proof for it other than my own gut feeling, ironically enough. You can make arguments for it, but if someone doesn't want to accept it, they don't have to accept it. My personal view is they're wrong and I'm right, but isn't their view the same? They believe they're wrong, or that I'm wrong and they're right. See, you and I in my moment become confused as I rock in my chair. Leaning, speaking towards you. And by what metric can I judge them? That's where the nifty invention of the gods comes. But in any case, beauty doesn't exist on its own. Is virtue and goodness only relative to how many people recognize it? Think of this for a moment. If there was a society in which it was perfectly okay for men and women to murder one another without just cause, without any sort of system, and that was just how society was... Would there even be a concept of murder? Or would it just be socially acceptable? Think about that. I mean, are morals relative or are they eternal? I would like to believe morals are, in fact, eternal. And to justify this, I have a deity, right? A god. But those who don't have a god, those who cannot afford to have a god or have no faith or have no reason to believe in a god, suppose they still want to believe in objective morality. Well, then where does it come? Well, morality would naturally come from logic, rationalizations, thoughts, and feelings. I think the ultimate one is whether you can rationalize or simply feel something deep enough. Those are the two real options for the one without God, because God takes the choice for rationalization and, well, feeling out of it. If God's the ultimate reality, then morality is what he says, and his morality is my reality. I have to submit to it. By very nature, I have to, or at least acknowledge it. And then I'd be wrong if I didn't. And I might be wrong, but, you know, it still exists. But it's a little more complicated when you remove that eternal standard. And that's why, to a certain extent, I respect the atheist. I respect the nihilist. I respect the writings of uh, a certain overly used and misquoted Nietzsche, who said, God is dead, and what shall we do with him? Ah, Nietzsche... There are so many of people who are acolytes of his that have never read any one of his books. Personally, I'm a pretty big fan of Beyond Good and Evil. And I'm reading The Antichrist right now, and I confess it's a really good, biting insult to Christianity. It's enjoyable. It's fun. It's challenging. And while it's no different or uncommon from the modern edgelord, for its time it was revolutionary. I picture Nietzsche as a kind of armchair... No. Take that back. As a sort of computer chair, hunched over his laptop, screaming at the world, demanding that they listen to him, screaming, God is dead, what are we going to do? And then quickly after falling. but if you believe in God, that's foolishness. One who, without a doubt, understood that it would be dangerous to imply that God didn't exist, but also knew that, well, it's a fanciful fairy tale, and just because it's useful doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And by the way, morals in general are just a collection of biases that we acquire over time i think nietzsche is misunderstood and often misquoted i think he is underappreciated and in some ways over loved he's overrated in his atheism in his nihilism and he's underrated for the more sensitive and well thought out portions of his thinking i would say what makes him great is not that god is dead but rather What can we do to replace him? I think for him it was social engineering, culture, art, history. These things, these will replace religion. These things will form our basis. They don't necessarily have to be rational or logical. They merely have to work or be pragmatic. Utilitarianism assumes that there is something that works. And what is work? No, the Superman, the Ubermensch, is the one who's able to simply make his will manifest. The one who's able to bring about a reality of his own. And in a sense, a man becomes his own god because the god of the Old Testament that Nietzsche often derides and scoffs at brought everything into being by a single word. He spoke it into being with his will. For Nietzsche, the Ubermensch is one who is able to speak his desires into reality the same way that God once spoke, let there be light, and thus it was. Nietzsche sees a day where man will one day promote himself the way God once asserted himself in the ancient past. He sees man as a sort of self-creating God, and while it's completely, completely counterintuitive to my own personal beliefs, to a certain extent I respect it. I respect the idea of a man having strength of will enough to defend his beliefs and to push them and to enforce them and having conviction in spite of no conviction. A man having force of personality great enough to enforce his reality on others. This isn't a good thing. It's authoritarian and, generally speaking, has harmful effects. But the idea that a man could be so strong of will that he could actually bring about his vision into reality, that's beautiful. And we acknowledge people for that every day. The artist, the musician, the poet, the writer, all of them. The leader, the political activist, the religious, even even the fundamentalists who we all like to hate. We admire those traits, the idea that they're bringing their creation, their passion to life, and making a difference. Isn't that what they always say? Make a difference where you're at. Making a difference. What's a difference? And what difference should I make? If everything's relative, shouldn't it be my difference that I choose on my own terms? Well, while I feel like that's a fair and even occasionally reasonable justification and, and point of view, many people would kind of scoff at it. That's the part that people don't like about Nietzsche. The fact that he brings up an uncomfortable truth, which is with God dead, well, what difference is there to make but the difference that benefits you? Bring your reality into reality. Bring your thoughts into the real world. Make them manifest. Become the Superman. It's inspiring and tragic all at the same time as a man tries to ascend godhood, but it doesn't take into account man's own mortality, his limitations, his weakness. That's why he's called the Superman. A man without weakness, a man with perfect invulnerability, a man with perfect strength, power, and will, capable of bringing down civilizations or uprising them by his own might. A man who can essentially replace God and get others to agree to it, if he's only strong enough. It's tragic because it'll never happen, but when it finally does, I'm sure it'll be a form of antichrist. And that's really what we all secretly deep down are. We're our own antichrists. The anti-God. The anti-self. It's a strange paradox, but it speaks to something fundamental in human race. It speaks to something that we all have, which is ego. Nietzsche's writings are the ultimate expression of ego and yet at the same time destroying it. He knows it's not sustainable. He knows that men need principles and ideals to live. We've evolved that way. But yet he also doesn't want to believe in the fanciful stories of Christianity. Or their quote-unquote slave morality and moral principles. He thinks they make people weak. So there has to be a sort of ground in which men can find their own way. But it can only be found through experimentation. And through force of will. By enduring pain and suffering beyond all comprehension. And finally, perhaps, just perhaps, grinding out long enough to make their will a reality. I don't know if this has been a great summary, but... That's generally the vibe I get from Nietzsche, and it doesn't do him justice. My rant doesn't do him justice. You should read it for himself. Try reading try reading, The Genealogy of Morals, or Beyond Good and Evil, or The Antichrist. All of them are great books, and I can't recommend them enough. Though not to young or those of weak heart. And Nietzsche does have some hilarious things to say about relations with women. I mean, he was so butthurt. Like, this guy was an incel before it was cool to be an incel. Like, <laughs> he he got cucked so much uh, throughout his life. I think he fell in love with a woman and she wouldn't marry him because he had syphilis because of a prostitute. And what she did is she flirted with him and then they went to Italy with his best friend, had a love triangle. The two of them left him in Italy to run off and fall in love after he proposed to her. It was like the ultimate FU. So Nietzsche, some of his writings about women in particular are pretty pretty entertaining for me. Because you could tell it's just the writings of a man who's bitter um, with his lack of success towards the opposite sex. And, and, you know, to be fair enough, I mean, what guy wouldn't be in that position? I mean, you know, every dude's had a moment where he's been upset. And uh, every person, I think, has been upset and leveraged unfair judgments against groups of people. I don't believe there's a single person without bias on earth. I don't think there's a single person who wouldn't be a little bit like Nietzsche in his situation. Though, come to the same conclusions... <sighs> I can't say. I can't say I would or wouldn't. In any case, I think uh the last 16 minutes have been pretty productive and um I got to consider the last third. All right, folks, I think this is the end of the podcast. I hope that you guys will forgive me for my brief break, but I needed it. And to be honest, I'm glad to be back. I can't wait to review the other cigars with you and hopefully have a better on podcast from now on. I'm thinking about writing a few more scripts and doing less offhand stuff and having more topics written out. If you guys have any suggestions, you can always message me on Instagram or drop a comment. I know I took a brief break from that as well, but I should be back on by the time of this upload. I hope you guys are having a good couple of weeks and are prepared for the holidays, which I know I'm stressing about. It's been a rough couple of days, and I'm getting used to a new job, and getting used to the gym, and getting used to getting my diet together. But hopefully, we make progress at different rates. If you have a small business, or you have something you want to promote, or you have something that you want to add um, to this podcast, which is a podcast by a Virginian for Virginians for local groups, if you are of any religious affiliation, if you have any opinion you want to offer, I'd be glad to have you on. I've been looking for someone to uh, speak to me, to argue with me, to talk with, and I think that'll really add life to a podcast and help us to thrive together. I uh, I invite you to come on and, and seek me out and, you know, have a, have a cigar with me. <laughs> if you don't smoke, that's okay, but I certainly will. Um, in any case, I hope you guys are having a good couple of weeks and Uh, I'll see you again later, next time I release the podcast. Bye.